the fear that a mother you as a mother have and then part of it's drawing on the, the real world news stories but also homeland security and this the fbi in the u.s identify white supremacist terrorists as the number one terrorist threat in the united states right now but if you but if you're going to look at movies or TV shows or books, that's not the face that is being presented as a terrorist. So it was important to me journalistically. You know, I say I left journalism to write fiction so I could tell the truth. The Latinos Out Loud podcast. All right, you guys, this is the part of the show here at Latinos Out Loud where we interview someone amazing. And I say the same thing every episode. And I don't get tired of saying it because we keep getting amazing guests. You know, I'd retire the phrase if the guests weren't amazing. All right, I'm really thrilled for this episode because, guys, I've said this before too. This is a dream come true. Yeah, I said it. It's a dream come true. I read this woman's literature in 2003, two years after I graduated college, because that was the era I was in. I needed her writing for that era. I am so thrilled to talk to incredible author Alyssa Lynn Valdez. That's who's in the building. Welcome to Latinos Out Loud. Alyssa, please join us. Please come on in. Have a seat in the sala, in the virtual sala. I'd like to interview, um, interview introduce someone else who's also going to join the party, who is the editor, the book club leader here at LOL, and the segment leader of a segment we like to call LOL Lit. Annabelle Soto is also in the building. Annabelle, what's good? So excited. So do, am I, I'm not alone when I say this is a dream come true, right? Because you and I connected on the side and we um, were like... Yeah, so Alisa, I can't even tell you. It, me and Rachel were talking about it. I had the copy of my book. I don't lend books out. Maybe you're the same. And I told her I couldn't find my copy. I re <laughs> you're reading this book is like a core memory locked. All of my friends were reading it. It felt so amazing to see a Latina author read about Latinas who are like me and so different from each other, successful. I'm so happy to be here. This is exciting. Thank, Thank you. you. I, I'm I'm blushing and like <laughs> having huge, you know, imposter syndrome. Thank you. You guys are too kind. I appreciate it. Thanks for being honest about that. We also talk about those issues that we face. Oh, imposter syndrome galore.com right here. This guy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we talk about that. I mean, we're artists here. Uh, it's really yeah. exciting. These these brains together right now. Well, OK, I know you have a title that's coming out in just a few days. And, and I think we could get there in just a moment. But if we go in chronological order real quick, let's just give a brief history of some of the titles that the Eloeleros may know. I mentioned one of them, The Dirty Girls Social Club, published in 2003, Playing with Boys, Dirty Girls on Top. These are these are a few. And if you guys remember, the cover art was so cool. I 
loved that cover art. You knew it was Elisa Valdez when you saw the cover art. And I want to know about all that. So, okay. Could you explain to us about if we could dial back to 2003 or actually when you first wrote Dirty Girls Social Club, um, what was what was the calling for that? You know, what was the approach to that subject matter? What was the era in your life? Give us like a paint a picture of, of the birth of Dirty Girls Social Club. Okay. I mean, it's been almost 20 years, which is crazy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's been more than 20 years since I wrote it. Um, So I was was in my late 20s, you know, when I started writing it, and I was in my early 30s when it was published. Um, At the time that I started writing it, I was a reporter, a newspaper reporter in Boston. Um, And I – it was – it was the book that I wanted to read, but I couldn't find at the yes. time, you know, and by that, I mean, like, I loved t- everything that Terry McMillan wrote. Waiting to Exhale was like life changing for me uh, because it was the first time I read a book about women of color in the United States who were just leading everyday lives. It wasn't. And at the time, I didn't know that we called that, you know, sort of the white gaze, like so much of what was accepted as writing about people of color was a, a lot of it, the, What there's gatekeeping that goes on in publishing and the stuff that was being allowed to be published until Terry McMullen for African-American women or about African-American women tended to be really great books, not saying they're not good books, great books, but they were books that were about misery uh, and oppression and difficulties and there's a place for that but when that's the only story that you have of a group of people it's quite limiting and and it minimizes the the general humanity of that group I think we need to be allowed to have fun too now we all know that's normal now uh you know my son's generation he's he's 22 none of this is news to them but 20 years ago it was news for for how we were portrayed, for sure. Nobody had written about people like me and my friends who, I'm not saying I didn't face oppression, of course I do, but you know, we want aspirational stories too. We wanna be able to see ourselves as more than pain. Uh, And and there, it was funny that I, I got a lot of pushback from people in our community at the time who thought that if I wasn't, like they had so deeply internalized the pain porn, that's <laughs> what I call it. Oh my gosh. That, that they thought that's really in order to be authentic, to be writing an authentic Latina experience, it had to be about misery. Pain you know? porn, Annabelle. <laughs> wow, that like phrase really <laughs> resonates though. I feel them like, okay. And, and I'm not I'm not saying it's not bad and and I'm not saying that we don't face discrimination. That's clearly the case. Um, but I'm saying that is not all I want to talk about. You know, I, I want to also have joy. I also want to have just, I just want to be a regular person. I want to be able to do the things that the dominant class does. And it, it's so funny, like, that at the time I was sort of punished by our own, some of our own, not all of our own. Like, there were so many fans who were ready for it, too. But there were sort of the, the, the sort of storied, old, fabled people who'd been well-known up until then. I can give you an example. When I wrote Dirty Girl Social Club, I sent it to a bunch of agents 
And one of them was um, Sandra Cisneros's agent. Oh. And she represented a few Latino authors. And I thought, I'll just send it to her. And I heard back from her. She is not Latina. But her response was, I cannot accept this book because it is not authentically Latina. Which I found really surprising and strange. I'm like, My mouth well, dropped. All of our mouths yeah. are wide open right now. Let's just close them <laughs> before the flies come in. Um, wow. Okay. Closing jaw. Please continue. Yeah. So that that was really an interesting, you know, journey. Like, not only was the pain painful stuff the only thing that was being allowed through, but if you dared to say, I also can laugh and be funny and snarky and have problems with my job and be coming out of the closet and just doing all of these other things, uh, then they're like, well, no, 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 that's that's what we do. That's that's for the dominant class. And um, oh so that, that's been that's been a fascinating journey, like being told by really the progressive establishment in a way that that wanted to, to pity us, that my work was not authentic because it wasn't pitiful. Like because it was it was presenting somebody like me as being a lot like them, and and when so that the book comes out, I eventually get a different agent who doesn't think any of that crap, and um, the book does great, and we get film deals and TV deals, and I'm hearing the same thing. So like at one point I had a deal to develop it. I know people will ask about this all the time. They know it. What they're like? I heard that was going to be a movie. I heard it was going to be a TV show. And it never happened, and there are a lot of reasons for why it never happened. But one of them was um, I, I had a deal at Lifetime back then. There's different people in charge now. so. But um, oh. And I was on board to write it. I was on board to produce it. And I turned in what you call a season Bible, which is where you you know, draw out the character arcs for the whole season of what's going to happen to this person and that person. And then I outlined the pilot and turned it in to two white, non-Latina female executives. And the meeting that I had with them afterwards, they said, like, we don't, we can't, we don't like this. It's not Latina enough. And I remember thinking, well, you know, the six lead characters are all Latinas. So how is it not Latina enough? And they said, well, it just reads like it's like me and my friends. I think oh these are things gosh. me and my friends would do. And I'm like, wow. okay, so what... What do you, in your mind, do you think they should be doing to be more Latina? And the, the su suggestion that was made in all seriousness was, could we have them debating? Can we open with the, the women debating whether or not to date men in prison? <gasps> could you make them talk more street? Could you, you know, could, is it believable that all six of them would have gone to college? Could two of them maybe not have gone to college? Um, is it believable they would have gone to BU? Couldn't they go to community college? Guys, I mean, I, I normally don't do this, but hold on. I just whipped out the fan. I'm fanning myself because I'm hot. I'm, I'm heated. I'm very heated and I'm fanning myself in a, on a cold day in New York City. My face is red. <laughs> I just have to breathe because the, the amount of gasps that Annabelle and I and probably all of the Eloeleros just did is 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 intense. Um, wow. Alisa, wow. 
what did you how do you react to stuff like that when you're like hold on i'm latina my friends are latina what do they want you to open up with more red lipstick what should they be dancing a sexual forbidden dance like the lambada like what is happening here what should they be cooking with an apron and like a sexy outfit what yes so they, they i'm all fanning have- myself i can't i'm fanning it was one network or studio after another. Similar things were happening over 15 years. I've been trying to get this to the screen. Because in yeah. Hollywood, if you have a book that has sold more than 400,000 copies, generally, it's like greenlit. Because they're like, there's a built-in audience for this. And this book did that. But the, and, but the problem was always, you know, and I don't want to spend this whole time complaining, but it's been, it's been a long road. It's been a long 20 years. Um, it's taken a lot longer to get to where I am now, which I think is a much better position. I feel like I was 20 years ahead of my time in some ways, um, which is better than being like, you know, Sor Juana, Ines de la Cruz, who's like centuries ahead of her time. Like That would have sucked. Where like, I'm not being burned at the stake, you know, so that's <laughs> cool. I'm just having horrible meetings with studio executives who were like, do Latinas really go to Ivy League schools? I'm like, I'm right here. I'm right, I went to Columbia. Wow, I'm yikes. right here. Oh, you, you know, so it's been, uh, man, has it been crazy. It's been I, a crazy, crazy ride. And someday I want to write about all that, you know? Well, I think this conversation is very healthy. You say complaining. I'm going to say <laughs> this is super healthy to hear, to absorb even to gasp about, I mean, you're yeah. addressing people right now on this podcast that are writers, aspiring writers, people that are following in your footsteps and have you to thank for keeping that torch lit, you know, fighting for a stronger light on that torch, you know? So we have a lot to be thankful for you and you have every right to complain. We, you, thank you. You are so, talking to absolutely. Columbia Pictures. Like, just to, like, I know Lifetime you mentioned, want to mention Columbia. It's not that we're throwing anybody under the bus. It's that Elisa has had these conversations and she's fighting this really hard fight. So, look, yeah. there's more to say. And I want to give you, just keep, this is the platform. This is your mic just as much as it is Annabelle and mine's right now. That didn't make sense grammatically. In front of a writer, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. Do not worry. I'm a musician who became a writer. I don't know what I'm doing. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> but but no like I so you asked what I did I got out of those deals I'm like I, I can't do it I can't do what you want me to do Whoa. and so I went broke man I, yeah. it's been 20 years people are like oh she's got to be rich she made a lot of money off that first book I ended up you know each new book after that sold less than the first one and it just kind of petered out to the point that I had to become a you know a public school teacher uh, I had to open my own bake little bakery. I had to do all kinds of little things to make a living as a single mom in New Mexico. I think if I'd lived anywhere else when I got divorced and didn't end up stuck here, which I love New Mexico, but it's the poorest state in the union. It's the least literate state in the union. There are not a lot wow. of jobs here. Wow. Um, there are a lot of problems here. Um, so, but you know, my I got di- divorced when my son was like six. And so we had shared custody. I couldn't move out of state with him without his dad's permission. And I didn't want him to not know his dad. So I was stuck here. It was, it was hard. It was hard. Um, 
So the new book that I have coming out is my first novel in 10 years. Oh, so for the- right, you guys. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Clap it up. Thank Throw you. your books in the air. Everybody would catch them. Don't let them fall on the floor. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about Hollow Beasts and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I got so jaded with the fight after a while. I was just like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I need to just like focus on other things. But um, in the last few years, I've like started thinking about writing again. And a couple years ago, I again, I was like, so my life now is very different. You know, Dirty Girl Social Club takes place in Boston. It's younger women. It's like this urban setting and, you know, all of that early kind of at the place in life, 28, you know, where you're looking. Most of your life is still ahead of you. You're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm now 54, you know, so... Woo-woo, get it. I just want to say get it. Okay, get it. Looking good, looking good. And after raising a kid and going through all these things, I just wasn't, I'm not the person I was back then. Um, I can't keep writing that book anymore. So again, I was like, what is the book I want to read and I can't find now? Um, and part of the blessing of, you know, the, the Chica Lit career petering out and was that I can now, I'm now free to write anything I want. I don't have to keep writing in that genre. So the genre that I read the most myself is suspense, thriller and suspense. My favorite writer from the time I was in college is Dean Koontz. Oh, I think he's a genius. Yeah. Um, he's just un- unbelievably brilliant um, and so prolific. And what I like about him is the same thing I like about Charles Dickens. You know, they both, they're similar writers actually, which is they write entertaining commercial fiction for their time but it's always got really profound social commentary, I think, especially about class, social class and the, the pitfalls of power and, um, you know, all of the things that interest me. So I thought I want to do that. And, and I, I also am living in rural New Mexico now. I used mm-hmm. to live in, you know, big cities in my youth. And as I got older, you know, my, my mom always says you become the older you get, you become who you've always been. And the first five years of your life are super formative in how you view the world. And those years of my life were spent in a tiny town called Bosque, New Mexico, where my grandfather ran the trading post. Uh, it, I mean, it's profoundly rural, like tiny, tiny, tiny. And we lived in a little adobe house with four rooms on the other side of the little adobe church from my grandpa's store oh, in the middle of the desert. You know, so my my early memories are just wandering around the desert as a toddler. My first friend was this old man named Willie who only spoke Spanish, you know, because in New Mexico, New Mexico only became a state in 1912. Um, my family on my mom's side has been here since the 1500s. Wow, you guys. You know, so wow. it's kind of, yeah. So my my mom's Spanish side, like, has always been here. My And they married into English and Irish and whatever, but my grandpa and my grandma went to school here in Spanish. You know, my grandpa had to speak Spanish. So my first friend was this old Hispano man named Willie who was blind. And he lived in the little adobe house a third of a mile away. And I could walk there by myself in the desert and like sit on his floor. And he'd play the accordion and tell me stories. So that's who I am. You see my little painting. That's that's who I am. 
Oh, Bendito, um, I love Willie. I feel like, uh, was he like the curandero? Was he like the one that was like, drink this to alleviate your flu-like symptoms? <laughs> he was probably like that. He was magical, though, because one time when I was about to walk home, he heard a rattlesnake coming towards me, and he's blind, like cannot see. And the dude grabbed a shovel and like cut the snake in half, you know. Yo, wow. That's a location, what? like a bat. Nice. <laughs> so... That's like, that's, that's what I came back to. When I got pregnant with my son, I was living in LA. I think people who grow, grow up in a place like New Mexico, you, you have this undeserved inferiority complex. I'm like, nothing interesting, no one important comes from here. Nothing interesting happens here. If I want to be somebody, I have to leave. And so in my youth, I was kind of like, I'm going to be this Boston person. I'm going to be this New York person. I'm going to be this LA person. And I was those things. I lived away for 15 years. But after, as I became more mature and as I was expecting my son, I'm like, there's some things about New Mexico that I miss, that I want for him. And one of them is, if you have a Spanish surname and you grow up in New Mexico, you get to be a who instead of a what, which is kind of like growing up in Latin America, but it's in the borders of the United States. Whereas, when so because 48% of our population is... Latin, Latino, Latinx, Latin, Hispano, whatever the hell you want to call it. That's <laughs> half the people here. And so you grow up where the president of the university has a Spanish surname. Right now, our governor is a Latina, and she just passed legislation for free school meals for every child in the state. Awesome. awesome. We have free, we have free childcare up to age five for everyone here. We have free wow. college for every New Mexico resident here. Wow. It's unbelievable. So it's like yeah. its own country. And so I, I felt like being a Valdez growing up here, I was never, my identity was not my ethnicity. I mean, I had one, but I also got to be the jazz kid. I was in band. I was, I got to be other things because all the kids at my high school, in every clique, the rodeo kids were all Latino kids. You know, the, um, the stoners the were all Latino kids. kids. I yeah, love we had the, that. The cowboy Yo, club with, some, and, you know. I, I got to shout you out for playing tenor sax, by the way, because I know a lot of women. I'm a band, former band nerd right here. Annabelle knows because we went to high school together. Uh, I played clarinet, um, but I quit senior year because I really wanted to march. I didn't want to play pomp and circumstance from the stage. So yeah. I quit senior year. Also, I became twirler captain, as Annabelle knows. Um, but anyway, I say, <laughs> um, I say that right? to say Nothing a lot of that. the women... Right. But the gals used to always gravitate to alto sax because it was smaller. Right. But like the real badasses played tenor sax, baby. <laughs> That's how I That's knew hilarious. Elisa Valdez was a badass. I mean, I knew from your writing, but I just wanted to shout you out for playing tenor sax. Big old, You're big old. Kind. Thank you. I, I started, I did start on alto, but in middle school, they needed a berry sax player, baritone. And they made me do it. And I was so little, like I could set the thing on the floor. <laughs> And play it from there. But then I was like, I like having the power of that, you know, those low tones. I'm going to I love yeah. that. I got so. the power. It's great with your tenor <laughs> sax. Rock on. I mean, I'm talking yeah. like second clarinetist. I never made it to first, oh. you know. Uh, but That's I supported. Right. I was there for support, you know, with my reeds. And always had a spare reed for everybody in the first clarinet section. Um, oh, yeah, anyway, this isn't about me and um, being bullied for reads <laughs> in band. Uh, this is about you and your badass tenor saxness. 
rather talk about you. No, I was <laughs> just saying, like, like in New Mexico. So my my ex husband is is Mexican American from San Diego area and dark, darker than me. And I knew our son was going to be a brown skinned Rodriguez boy. And you know, it was when I moved to Boston. It was the first time people started asking me what I was. Valdez, what are you? Like. <laughs> A person? No, wrong answer. What are you really? And what they wanted was to know where I was from, but that couldn't be the United States. It had to be some foreign place. Um, there was just this sense, there's a real ignorance in our country. Look, our country is just in the dumps as far as what people know. They don't even know New Mexico's a state half the time. But mm. but it, it was, it was, it was a long process. Like I kind of, I became very proud. You become very proud. You're like, well, and my dad's from Cuba. My dad's an immigrant from Havana, Cuba. So I have the, you know, many centuries, Hispano, New Mexican, Mexican American side, which is also Native American. And then I have the Cuban immigrant side. So I have both of that. So I have from an early age had this sense that Latinos were not all one thing. Like my mom's family, Hispano family, was nothing like my dad. Like they, they were very, very different. Um, the Caribbean thing versus the U.S. Southwest thing, very different. And um, so that's been sort of a, a thing that I've dealt with in a lot of my books is just the complexity of this group, you know, the beauty of it. The, I, I, I think it's a beautiful thing and a fascin endlessly fascinating thing. Um, but yeah, so when I moved back here, raised this kid, and, and at the start of the pandemic, I moved out of the city. Um, I was like, I don't want to be around people anymore. Like, people are making other people sick. I need to be somewhere where I'm not breathing someone else's air. And to keep my sanity, I just started hiking every day Ooh. because I couldn't, couldn't go anywhere else. I, I hiked a lot anyway, but... And I became, I got, this sounds weird, but I got very close to a family of crows, the animals, the birds. Mm -hmm. I would bring them food. They would remember me and my dog. They would follow us on our hike and talking to us oh, the whole, and they would leave me presents, so cool. you know, so I would give them food. Like Wait, what food, kind of usually. presents we talk about? The stuff that lands on your jacket or like what kind of, no, oh, okay, no. oh, all right. They would find like, after leaving them this this dog food or cat food or whatever I would leave for them, because it can be very snowy in the, the mountains here in the winter. It's very cold. I do live in the Rocky Mountains. Um, so cool. So in the, in the area where I would feed them, I would, after a couple times doing that, I would come back and find like little pieces of ribbon or little oh shiny God. pieces of trash, no like a little way. aluminum. Like they had found things that they associate with people and left them as a thank you. Oh my gosh, you guys. That is so beautiful. And this this started blowing my mind. It's like how we, wow. yeah, and spending so much time in nature watching coyotes from a distance, um, deer, uh, even bugs, and realizing how much I had underestimated our, our fellow sentient beings on the planet. I mean, I knew dogs were very smart, but everything's very smart. Mm. Um, and everything only takes what it needs in nature and it works. We're the thing that doesn't work. We're the crazy disconnected thing. So I started to think about all of that and, and plus the pandemic was going on and or is still going on. But, um, and one day when I was out there, there was like 
Part of my forest that I loved was gone because of a wildfire. I remember just being pissed off about it. So sorry. And that, no, yeah, and that fire was started by the U.S. Forest Service in a prescribed burn that got out of control. Uh, oh, what? A prescribed burn? Yeah, so they... It sounds painful and like I need Neosporin <laughs> for it, but that sounds really bad. Like a yeah, tragic well, fire brought on they, by humans? Why do they call well, it humans? Good? They burn stuff hoping it won't burn more stuff. But anyway, I thought none of the issues I've been thinking about you know, or I thought about when I was living a, a city life that was really disconnected from the well-being of the entirety of the planet matters if we don't fix how we deal with nature, if we don't fix climate change, if we don't stop exploiting everything. Because it's not just that we're exploiting animals and wildlife and nature and killing them, which we are doing, that is suicide too. For our mm -hmm. species mm -hmm. and it's that's where it's leading us so i thought i want a hero <laughs> i want to read about a hero I, I wish i could do something about this let me but i can't so let me create someone who can and that's where jody luna came from she's a, a game warden a latina game warden from new mexico who lived away for many years and came back to new mexico in her middle age kind of like me she was a poet and then decides I don't want to be a nature poet anymore because pretty words aren't doing anything. I need to go and fight. So game wardens are the only law enforcement officers whose only job is to protect wildlife from people. I'm glad you defined that for us. Yeah, okay. that's what they that's what they do. They enforce, um, you know, limits on hunting. Make sure that if you're hunting, you have a license to do so <clears throat> because there's a limit and that limit exists for a reason. They and that's all they do. They make sure that poachers aren't taking more than than their share. And what I found out in the process of that, and so in that sense, I think this is a very anti-cop era for good reason. But game wardens are the only cops we need more of, in my opinion, because they're the only ones that are protecting everything else from us. So. And what I found out in researching game wardens is it's the number one most dangerous law enforcement job in the country. Oh my Ooh, gosh. They're, they're eight they're eight times more likely to be attacked on the job than city cops. Wow. And here's why. Game wardens don't have partners. They're by themselves. Their patrol area can be 5,000 square miles. Wow. And for much of that patrol area, they don't have radio service or cell service. And they're up against armed poachers. What are poachers? Who are poachers? These are people who don't give a shit about the law. Sorry, kind of curse on your... No, of they... course. It's fine. Okay. Um, they don't care about the law. They don't care about life as long as nobody sees what they're doing. So game wardens are getting killed on the job all the time because they're out scary. there. And it's a very scary world. So I started thinking, how great would it be to have just this badass Latina who comes home after all these years and she's like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going out there. I'm going to protect these animals. And that's what she does. Um, but in the first book, I she, I wanted her to deal with social issues too. So a lot of things happen in the wilderness. There are, you know, people who hide out in the wilderness and do awful things. So she comes up in, in book one, she's up against a white supremacist terrorist cell that has decided to hide out in the 
National Forest. And they're planning an attack on a town in New Mexico because of its very large percentage of, of Latino population. And she, she tickets one of them at the beginning of the book for poaching. And he hates her. He's a skinhead. He, she, and it beca- begins this journey throughout the book where, you know, she finds out he's part of this group, that they're kidnapping women of color to hunt them like animals. And it's her job to take them down. So I got to tell you, it's amazing. <laughs> and it is scary to read. I loved you shared on your Instagram what your dad said to you, right? He downloaded the book. He's almost 80. He downloads the book. P.S. Shame on you, mommy, uh, to my mother. Um, and he said it was scary. It's very scary, but it's a masterpiece. And my heart, like, literally loudly, because I melted. I'm like, oh, my God, how amazing. But he yeah, moments of the book are so scary. How did you draw on your staff writer experience? Like how did how did you how were you able to do that? Well, so part of it was just rooted in news. There was um, a white supremacist in Iowa a few years back who decided to hunt a 14-year-old girl whose name is Natalia. Miranda. And so I named one of the girls who's being hunted by these men, Natalia, after her. And he decided, in real life, this person decided to hunt this 14-year-old girl because she, quote unquote, looked Mexican. And when I I lived in Arizona briefly and ran into like Minutemen and all of that SB, you know, show me your papers, trash. Wow. When my son was little. And, And we had some kind of scary moments with some of these people and and it really became clear to me how dangerous they were then um so part of it was like the fear that a mother you as a mother have and then part of it's drawing on the the real world news stories but also homeland security and this the fbi in the u.s identify white supremacist terrorists as the number one terrorist threat in the united states right now Mm, but if you but if you're going to look at movies or TV shows or books, that's not the face that is being presented as a terrorist. No. So it was important to me journalistically. You know, I say I left journalism to write fiction so I could tell the truth. Ooh, um, but it was Ooh. So <laughs> Ooh, God, put that on a t-shirt. Yes. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you want to know the truths of a time, look to its novels. You know, Charles Dickens writing about child labor at a time that the newspapers are saying this is normal. Oh, by the way, we're going back to that in the U.S. apparently now, too. Um, So, yeah, I wanted to set the record straight. This is actually what a terrorist looks like in the United States. And and I some some folks were like, is it realistic that they would hunt people? I'm like, the country was founded on hunting people who looked like this. Uh, and it's still going on, you know, that's, there are a lot of Native women missing all over the United States. Uh, where are they? What is happening there? Um, so I wanted to deal with all of that and also develop these characters. Um, the good guys win, so even though it's scary, don't worry, this is a genre where the good guys, or my version of the good guys, probably not Trump's version of the good guys. Um, but yeah, so sorry if it's scary, but... 
it's fun to write scary stuff when Ooh, there's yeah. catharsis, right? Like, I want these kinds of terrorists to lose, even right. if it's only in fiction. Like, for my own well-being, I had to create a world where that happened. And the cool thing about stories, I think, is you have to create realities in art in order for people to be able to conceptualize what could be possible in in reality you know so that's kind of where i see like my role am i an activist probably but my my version of activism is creating possibilities for for things to be different than they are you know you you say you're an introvert but um like i follow you on Instagram and you do such a great job of communicating exactly what you have just shared. Like you see how, of how much of a badass she is. She posts, you know, asinine comments and breaks them down. Um, she shares her passions. And I just, I love that you are honest and I did I say badass enough? Badass. Oh, yeah. You could say it again though. <laughs> And again and again. Badass. Yes. Alisa. Oh, that's very I just, nice. I love it. It's so refreshing. So, you know, sometimes authors are told, oh, be careful. You know, you want to like get as many people to like you, I guess. Right. So how do you yeah. um, stay true to yourself? And, and what do you find hardest in, in this work part of being an author? Right? Yeah. Uh, I think... I think there's a, having 20 years ago, great success with that first book and then losing it at the time seemed like a nightmare, mm, you know, yeah. but what it taught me was really important. And I think what I learned from that is also what my dad learned being an immigrant. When you have everything, when you lose everything, what is left? And so I was able to, I, I mean, I went broke, 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 like moving back in with my parents broke because I could not find a way to survive for a, a little while. And that makes me, that made me fearless because I'm like, you know what? I'm still here and this isn't that bad. You know, I remember at one point I had my car getting repossessed back then and, and having to take the bus or ride my bike and being like, I actually like this. What am I afraid of? So this this idea that I have to be careful, I can't be honest, I can't be myself. First of all, I wouldn't have become a writer if that was important, if, if pe not upsetting people was important to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is not a profession for that. Yeah. Um, but I will say that some things have changed in 20 years. And so now there's a lot of nervousness mm. in the world of publishing and media about upsetting people on Twitter um, or getting canceled. So my books now have to be read by a sensitivity reader oh, who, wow. who will go through and find things that will could possibly offend people. And now we have to make sure that we don't do that. And I'll give you an example of most of the time I appreciate it. And, and it does help me to see some blind spots that I might have you know, the ableist language or things like that. So that, that's that been helpful. But there are other things that I think take it too far. So in in Hollow Beasts, you know, Jodi Luna is, she's she hunts, 
but she's she doesn't she's not gonna pose with her kill or any of like that kind of you know gringo bullshit hunting. She's doing the old indigenous way of hunting, which is like you worship the animal, you respect it, you're humble, you feel like sort of awful that you have to do this. It's just like part of and and you thank it and you think that you're the soul of the animal is inhabiting you and you honor it. So she's a carnivore. Her daughter is a vegan. Her teenage daughter. So there's a conversation that I initially wrote in the book where they're arguing about this. And mom is like, you're not going to get enough B12. And just kinds of things that carnivores say to vegans. And that was flagged to be taken out because it would offend vegans. And I remember thinking, you know, I know it would offend vegan. It's offending a vegan in the conversation in the book. And the vegan is responding <laughs> That's back. That's the like, purpose. <laughs> right. So I think... I think there's a fine line between like, are we offending people and are we neutering our characters to the point that every, you're not even realistic anymore. Like people have to, you have to be able to create realistic characters, um, you know? And so, so that's, that's been an interesting, interesting journey. I'm sure I, I'm terrifying probably to my publisher in some ways, like, I'm too outspoken or whatever, but you know what? Um, you know, W.E.B. Dubois was outspoken like about during a pandemic. Like, who who am I? What is my purpose if I wasn't put here to to talk about the things that are going on? Like, I'm I don't know, and I I do think there are enough people who who share my view that it's, it's not that dangerous. And, and actually, so the book, the book is part of Amazon first reads this month, which means people can download it for free uh, if they have Amazon prime till the, till the end of March, or they can get it for two bucks. And the book has been like way outperforming even dirty girls social club. Oh, right. That's just fantastic. It's like, it's crazy. This book right now, as you and I speak, is at number one on Amazon for political thrillers. I love yes! it. I love it. Yes! I've never been on like a mainstream list like that. I was always on the ethnic list, you know. Oh, this is huge. So I'm, I'm like huge. number one. Jody Luna is number one on a list that if you look at all of the other books, they're all written by dudes with like two monosyllabic names like Brad Thorne. <laughs> <laughs> who, are, who are writing about white guys, who are Navy SEALs, who are taking down brown guys, who wow. are bad guys. Jody Luna's at the top of that list right now, y'all. Go Jody <laughs> Luna, Gay Gordon. <laughs> we ass. have to wrap up this interview, but I okay. we we ask people like yourself who've written masterpieces, if you would read a little bit of it to us and to the Eloeleros, is that possible, Elisa? Could you take us out with this episode? with maybe a reading of a few of your favorite pages or... Oh, my gosh. That's... that's. I thought you'd never ask. Let me... Um, I, I, I don't have a hard copy of the book, so I'm going to have to pull it up on my phone. Okay, the rest of us fangirls will hold them, like hug them like I'm doing right now. I'm <laughs> hugging my copy. Oh, so is Annabelle. Feels good, right, girl? It feels Doesn't nice. It feel so it's warm. Yeah. Okay. It's so great. Okay, so we're we're gonna give you the floor. Hello, hello. Enjoy I gotta this. Figure out what part I want to read? I guess okay. the opener. While you figure that out, know. I'm gonna just tell everybody to go on Amazon, 
purchase this book. The official on sale date is April 11th, but I mean, it's available for purchase right now. So, and it's free. There's an offer for a free something. LOLeros, you got to jump on that. Okay. Don't miss that opportunity. You heard it here first. Um, this is such a treat. Um, I feel like maybe we should go get some marshmallows or something. Should we like <laughs> toast marshmallows or should I put my flashlight under my chin and shut off the lights? <laughs> this, is, sure. this, is, this is younger okay. Annabelle's dream. This is scary, you guys. I cannot wait to be brought into this world by the author herself. Okay. I'll just read the opening that's after the prologue. The prologue is the violent, scary part, but this is like the more fun part. Well, it, well, it's also scary. Okay. So chapter one. The thing about severed heads was they never smelled good. Not even when they were fresh, which this one wasn't. And especially not on a warm Friday afternoon in June, which this was. Nothing else around could mask its stench either. Not the astringent breeze wa washing through the boughs of countless ponderosa pines. Not the petrichor of the dark summer thunderstorm moving towards this mountain. Not even, it turned out, New Mexico game warden Eloy Atencio's famously excessive Old Spice cologne. A macho and mustachioed 75, the sweet-smelling conservation officer, five foot three in his boots, had once been stout and strong as a bull rider. These days, he strained the seams of his gray and black uniform the way a cooked sausage strained its skin. There was a good chance he would rather have been home with a bowl of his wife Marta's red chile pozole than prying the rotting head from the bed of a rusted white pickup on an old logging road in the San Isidro National Forest, but he didn't complain. With the strength of a much younger man, he just swung that head up and out like it was a pail full of wet adobe and, holding it by one antler, lugged it toward his own New Mexico Fish and Wildlife Department truck, a black four-door Chevy Silverado 2500 with the department's silver star inside a circle emblem stamped across the front doors. All this commotion worried the flies. They fizzed up out of the buck's dead eyes, orbited a bit, then burrowed in again to snack. Standing nearby were two other people. The first was a tall, bald man whose neck was wider than his pointy head, as though the whole combination were a large white bullet jabbed through the neck of his shirt and jacket. He wore an aggressive overkill of mismatched tactical camo gear, was maybe 35 years old, 6'3 or 4, impatient and blustery. The second person, the one watching this first man like a mother crow watches a hawk near her nest, was Jody Luna, a game warden in training. She was a full foot shorter than he was, but more than ready to pull her state-issued Glock 40 caliber pistol out of its holster if he tried to get cute. At 45, through sheer force of willpower and in defiance of an arthritic knee. Jody was mostly muscle and still weighed what she'd weighed nearly 20 years ago, 124 pounds. Her long hair, dark with a few silver strands, was gathered into a thick straight ponytail she pulled through the opening in the back of her gray uniform's ball cap. Six months earlier, she had passed every physical and mental test with flying colors to become the oldest recruit ever named a conservation officer in the state of New Mexico. It was a shocking midlife career change for the former poetry professor, but surprised no one who actually knew her. Jody was fiercely protective of Officer Atencio, not only because he was her mentor 
and elderly on his last day of work before retirement, but also because he was one of the 13 uncles and aunts Jody had grown up with here in Rio Truchas County in central northern New Mexico. Her mother's oldest brother, Atencio, was one of the more well-read and free-thinking people in that generation of the family, which wasn't saying much, considering the rest of them were content with just one book, read mostly on Sundays. Atencio's relative worldliness was all the more remarkable for the fact that he almost never left Rio Truchas County at all, other than his weekly trips south to the big public library in downtown Santa Fe. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, this used to be a free country, you know, griped the poacher. Jody jutted her delicate chin toward the Confederate flag decal that took up at least half the rear window of his truck, narrowed her intelligent dark brown eyes and said, your flag there clearly indicates otherwise. Atencio grunted a bit more as he chuckled, chucked the trophy head into the bed of his truck, a feat he managed to accomplish by spinning himself around like a shot put Olympian a few times first. Pues tick-tock, tick-tock, he grumbled to Jody as he tapped the face of his wristwatch. Dale un ticket al maldito gringo ese ya sobrina. <laughs> this translated roughly to give the damn gringo a ticket already, niece. The poacher scoffed at the words he could not understand and bucked his head as though someone had just told him a joke he found offensive. This is America, he said speak English. I am pleased you know where you are, Jody replied, because here in America, it is against the law in every language to hunt trophy bucks in June. Just trying to feed my family, he said. Planning to feed them that mount-worthy trophy head, were ya? We seen the rest of the animal discarded up the hill, chimed in Atencio. Save your lives for your mama, boy. Don't you talk about my mama, said the poacher. I agree. Let's change the subject, said Jody. Let's talk about how I need to see your driver's license. Mm. It's in the glove box, he said. Well, then you better get it out, said Jody. But go slow and keep your hands or we can see them, said Atencio, unlocking and unholstering his own sidearm now. Jody tried not to think about the statistics. Being a game warden was the most dangerous job in law enforcement because game wardens, also called conservation officers, worked alone. I already told you that. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. Um, the poacher came out with a blue nylon wallet. Jody saw that there was an emblem hand drawn on the side of the wallet in what appeared to be gold glitter pen. It was a pyramid with an eye in it like you might find on a dollar bill. Here you go. The poacher just glared at her with eyes the unsteady blue of gas flames dangling the license between his pointer and middle fingers. Jody took the license with her left hand, keeping her right hand next to her pistol. Travis Eugene Lee, she read aloud, from Mesa, Arizona. Wait right here, Travis. Atencio nodded to let Jody know he'd keep an eye on the poacher, and she went back to the truck to run his license and write out the citations. This patch of forest had only spotty radio, cell, and internet. However, and she found herself unable to run much of anything. Guess it was his lucky day. She tore the citations from the pad, returned to the white truck, and passed them to Lee along with his license. He crumpled them up and tossed them into the greasy cab of his truck, along with all the fast food bags and Coca-Cola cans. No pude realizar la verifac... Well, sorry, that's the wrong person. No pude realizar la, la verifac... Verif 
sorry, verificación, verificación de yeah. antecedentes de él porque no había internet, Jody said to Atencio, letting him know she was unable to run the background check. No estoy sorprendido, he replied. I'm not surprised. What's with the Mexicans, asked Lee, mostly to himself. Everyone else simulates, not them. They never simulate. He was about to close his door, but Jody put her hand out to stop it from shutting. What did you say? He was not about to back down. He grinned and centered himself towards her proud. I said, why the hell can't you Mexicans simulate like everybody else? You want to speak Spanish? Go back to Mexico. Mm -hmm. ba Vamos, Atencio said to Jody, wheeling his hand to tell her to stop messing around. Hemos terminado ya. Aquí ya, vamos. El no vale la pena, tengo hambre. We're done here already, let's go. He's not worth it, I'm hungry. The word you're looking for is assimilate, Travis, said Jody, staring him down with equal and greater anger than he had. Some people might find it ironic that a man who cannot master the English language is lecturing a fully bilingual woman with several published books in that language about how she is supposed to speak Whoa. English. Wow. <laughs> Well, good for you, the poacher was caught off guard by this and responded with childish petulance. One more thing before you go, Travis, as I can only assume your understanding of United States history and the law is as shaky as your mastery of the English language. There is no official language in the United States. What's more, you're not in Arizona anymore. You're in New Mexico now. The 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo signed when Mexico ceded California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Texas, and Colorado as territories to the United States after the Mexican-American War guaranteed our right to speak Spanish in all seven of those places. Six of the seven names of those states are Spanish words, Travis, and the seventh isn't English. It was Ute. The city where you live, Mesa, Arizona, those are both Spanish words. So if you are really going to take this whole speak English crusade seriously, you're going to have to either move to New York City or lobby the state legislature to change the names of almost all the places in Arizona. All Stop right. <laughs> what? You guys, what a treat. That's Joey. Thank you so much. Can I quickly tell you some good news? Yes. yes. So this book was optioned last week for a TV series by the actress Gina Torres. Yes. 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 <laughs> Another badass woman. Yes. Amazing. And she had a um, she had a meeting with the head of her. She's on a show on Fox. So they had dinner and talked about it. And so now the head of that network is reading the book. So fingers crossed. Woo! Vela we get, lit. We will light the candles. We will yes. put some offerings out of Brenda. Yes. This is so great and so deserving. Right, you guys? Please put Thank your hands you. together. Throw your books in the air for Alisa Valdez on the Latinos Out Loud podcast right now. Woo! Oh my God. My heart is so happy. We wish you nothing but the greatness. You've been so great to us. And Thank it's you. all it's all coming back to you. It, it probably has started, but it's going to come back to you tenfold. Thank you for what you've given us, you know, for getting us through Much some eras in our lives. 
as the Thank readers you. of your literature. This is fantastic news, you guys. And and how do they follow you? Tell everybody where to follow you on the on the Instagrams and the Facebooks and the Twits. Uh, yes. What are my handles? Um. Let's see. If you want to see angry me, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> That's a, a, a at Elisa Valdez with an S. Rod one. Um, Instagram. I believe I am author Elisa Lynn Valdez. Yes. Make sure. Yes. That I can that's confirm. The, and that's the same as Facebook, but Facebook, like the author page on Facebook, there are 11,000 followers on there, but unless I pay Facebook now, they only show my posts to like 12 people. Oh gosh. So, yeah. So if you follow me on algorithm. Facebook, you might never see my posts. I think Instagram's probably, I, I want to start focusing more on Instagram. Um, so like, I'm going to be doing little short live readings from around New Mexico all through April. Cool. That's so exciting. Can people find out where they're going to be on your Instagram, quite possibly on your website? Okay, Mm. Eloeleros, you've got the directions. And go buy the book. Buy the libro. Thank you so much, Alisa. Thanks for coming by the Latinos Out Loud podcast. We really hope to have you back again for part two. Um, Or maybe to talk about the TV show. Hello. Hello. Oh, and Dirty Girls did get optioned again. Really? Yeah, and they're by an amazing director named Jesse Carrero. Oh, yes. Um, We know Jesse. We've had. We've had Jesse on. Did we have him on the show or did we do a quick interview on the red carpet? Regardless, his voice has been featured on the Latinos Out Loud podcast. (laughs) And we support the Torero family. Shout out to Ulysses, Jesse, and Lexi, Toreros that we support. They're amazing. They're so amazing. Yeah. And the writer they've got, they've got a Latino writer, showrunner, who's amazing. I I don't think she's signed yet, so I'm not going to say who it is, but you'd be very, you'll be very happy. Okay, then this yeah. conversation must continue. Um, we're so proud. Thank you so much. Palante, palante. And thank you so much again for coming by. Alisa right, Valdez, welcome. people. Alisa. Thank you. Thank you.